Well, good morning, everyone. It's beautiful to see you here. Good morning, Trinity people and people near and far. Uh, last Friday, the columnist Timothy Egan, writing in the New York Times, quoted Mario Cuomo's late, uh, famous line that politicians campaign in poetry and govern in prose. A rather poetical thing for a politician to say, that they campaign in poetry and govern in prose. I love that. Egan got to thinking about politics and poetry after that sensational inaugural poem by Amanda Gorman. And he wondered if maybe the reverse of Cuomo's adage might possibly be coming true, that after having run a rather prosaic presidential campaign, President Biden might be capable of governing poetically. That's a tall order, for sure. The only time, only time will tell, and I do have to say that as I looked at the inaugural, and especially as I listened to Amanda Gorman's gorgeous poem, I found myself imagining our nation and our people with fresh eyes. Her poem helped me heal after the horrifying events of January 6th. Healing is a strong word. Uh, healing is the work of God. But with her, you know, her fantastic yellow coat and that bright red headband, she did take on a nearly angelic aspect. She brought a sparkly kind of healing to the inauguration. She started her poem by reminding us of the challenges we face as a nation. She said, we've learned that quiet isn't always peace, and the norms and notions of what just is isn't always justice. But then she quickly reminded us of our strength. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. Again and again in her poem, she did what great poems do, what scripture does, what religious speech does. It helped us to see beneath the surface of our mundane lives, down into the thrumming pulse of our lives, down to those deep wells of our common human experience that form our character as a people and a nation. She said, let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true, that even as we grieved, we grew, that even as we hurt, we hoped, that even as we tired, we tried, that we'll forever be tied together, victorious. It's a poem of fierce truth and fresh optimism, and I suppose it's the kind of poem that young people will always need to be reciting to old people like me. Because people like me need to be reminded once, reminded once in a while of things that we once knew and then took for granted and then forgot. That there's always a new beginning happening somewhere. There is always the possibility of change. And that that new day is ours to apprehend. Amanda Gorman ended her poem with these words, 
The new dawn balloons as we free it. For there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Sometimes we find ourselves in a moment that demands poetry, not prose. Sometimes we need a poem. Poems can birth these higher understandings and then they work their way into our souls and they can take root there. They can stand there for years, maturing like old oaks. They can expand our capacity to imagine. Abraham Lincoln, that most gifted of poets, accomplished that in his first inaugural address in which he nearly begged the South not to secede. He said, we are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained it, must not break our, our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. The sheer beauty of Lincoln's words, that that's what made his unlikely appeal to our better angels almost work. And if they failed then, they continue to work on us now. When it's time to send an invitation out to our better angels, Lincoln knew we best use our finest stationery. The Prime Minister of Ireland understands this power of poetry, of course, Irish. In his congratulatory, in his congratulatory letter to President Biden, he quoted the poet John O'Donohue, who wrote, unfurl yourself into the grace of beginning. Unfurl yourself into the grace of beginning. The very beauty of those words makes that unfurling possible. And so, once again, perhaps we are entering a time when old men shall dream dreams and young men shall see visions as the prophet poet Joel put it. Maybe we too as a nation will find the means to unfurl ourselves into the grace of beginning. It was just such a moment of graceful unfurling that began Mark's gospel this morning with these poetical words of Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry. Appropriately, he uses ordinary words to point to something extraordinary. The time is fulfilled, he says. We've heard these words so often that their poetry has been drained from them, but when we sit with these words for a moment, we realize that Jesus is, of course, speaking metaphorically and poetically. After all, the time is fulfilled. What does this mean exactly? In what sense, in what sense is time ever fulfilled? Did time just finish off a feast of lasagna and red wine? Was time pushing his empty dinner plate aside and rubbing his belly and leaning back in his chair and saying, oh my God, I'm, I'm so fulfilled. 
Does time go through periods of emptiness and fullness? What does it mean to say time is fulfilled? For Jesus, there can be no doubt that his meaning was at least partly political. His teacher, John the Baptist, had just been arrested by Herod for the crime of speaking his mind. Soon he would be beheaded. This is the moment, Scripture tells us, that draws Jesus out of himself. It's a dangerous moment, a moment of portent and history, a moment of blood and resistance against a ruthless enemy. But as with all things having to do with Jesus, it's more than a merely political moment. The time is fulfilled, he says, the reign of God has come near. What does that mean? Well, I always go to the Jesus Seminar for answers to questions like that. The scholars of the Jesus Seminar say that Jesus had a poetic sense of time. They say he never thought of the apocalypse arriving on some future day as if it were some mere event that you could set your watch to. No, for Jesus, the apocalypse was happening all around him. And they say time was something in which the future and the present merged, simply melted together in the intensity of Jesus's vision. The future and the present merged, simply melted together in the intensity of Jesus's vision. Which is why in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, God's imperial rule is right here in your presence. And in the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus says, God's imperial, imperial rule is spread out upon the earth and people don't see it. In other words, the time for God's revealing is not ticking away in some celestial clock tower. The time for God's revealing is happening as we open our eyes to it. If only we're brave enough to see it, to use Amanda Gorman's words, if only, only we're brave enough to be it. This kind of talk inevitably leads us back to Martin Luther King's famous line that the arc of the moral universe is long and bends towards justice. Or as the former Attorney General Eric Holder used to say, the arc bends towards justice, but it only bends towards justice because People pull it towards justice. It doesn't happen on its own. Well, maybe it doesn't just happen on its own, but where do people find the courage to face the Herods of their day and to reach up and pull on that moral arc? What inspires them to do it in the face of dungeons and death? I say that is where God comes in. Whether acknowledged or not, God is willing us to bend that moral arc. That arc is bending toward justice because we are being held to account. We are being called to something greater. We are called to God's reign, which means we stand on the side of justice. And as we have seen in recent days, that takes courage. 
for Jesus, the time was fulfilled when he found the courage to speak after his teacher had been thrown into a dungeon over the past few weeks. We've seen a few people, Republicans and Democrats, exhibit that courage to speak out. And far too predictably, we've also seen a few people who have utterly failed the test. When Nelson Mandela was released from prison, the great Irish poet Seamus Haney wrote a play entitled The Cure at Troy. President Biden loves to quote from it, history says don't hope on this side of the grave. But then once in a lifetime, the longed for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. There are moments when hope and history rhyme. Maybe this is one of them. Maybe every moment is a moment when hope and history rhyme, when we find the courage to speak out and step into our moment of fulfillment. Seamus Haney's poem doesn't end there. The next two verses are worth remembering as well. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. Call the miracle self-healing, the utter self-revealing double take of feeling. If there's fire on the mountain or lightning and storm and a God speaks from the sky, that means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of new life at its term. I say now is the time for us to make that outcry, that birth cry of new life at its term because the time is fulfilled and we are in it now. Amen.